Welcome to the RGG EDU podcast, where they talk a little photography and drink a lot of whiskey. Season three of the RGG EDU podcast is brought to you by Smug Mug. Yeah, they got a ridiculous grin, and the name is funny, but Smug Mug is serious about photography. If you're ready to upgrade your photo game online, get your ass over to smugmug.com to see where the pros are storing, showing, and selling their images. In this episode, we're joined with Daniel J. Gregory, blogger, educator, podcaster, photographer, printer. Did I miss anything? That's about it. <laughs> that's I think a, that fills the day. <laughs> that's about it. We also have Rob Grimm, as usual. Oh, I'm here. And My dulcet tones are, are here for you all day long, Gary Martin. We also have special uh, host with the most. The most special. Renee Robin. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> that, was, that was a nice, the worst, yeah, weakest Wait. entry ever. <laughs> you need to work. Hey, you'll have a few more episodes Why to practice. Why did you get so meek on that? You're the, like the furthest thing from meek. And it like, happens. I don't know. It's just when people talk, say nice things about me. I'm like, how do I deal with this? Oh, you know, you said something horrible to me. I'm like, I got this. <laughs> like, yeah, that's who I am. I didn't say I'm what you had fight. the most of. I just said you had the most of something. I know. <laughs> All right, I'm imagining so, it was nice Daniel, uh, back to you Thank you for coming on the podcast And uh, you have your own podcast Can we start there? Uh, sure Yeah, it's uh, called The Perceptive Photographer And I've been doing it about two years And I originally started because Well, actually, I'm terrible at writing I have a couple of learning disabilities Dyslexia, dysgraphia So writing was a pain And I was kind of struggling with a bunch of stuff My own photography And I thought, hey, if I talk into a mic it's a way for me to not have to write anything down. And you've so, got a great voice. Thanks. I love it. I, uh, it sounds it's, great. It's not mine. I've actually borrowed it. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I'm on the air, it costs me like 40 cents a minute. <laughs> so did you marry a writer because you're not a writer? I actually am married to an author. <laughs> yeah. She's a uh, nonfiction storyteller and a poet and an essayist. So she yeah, cool. does a, a gamut of things. Yeah. Dyslexia. What was the second thing you said? It's called dysgraphia. I've never heard of that. Yeah, what is so it? it's a, uh, the, it's a, uh, manifests itself where my brain kind of works faster than my hand. And so like words and letters get left out. But the disability is I actually, when I look back and look at my own writing, I see the missing information. information. And so it's, I can't find where the things are wrong. Yeah. Oh, that's so bizarre. So computers have helped and grammar checkers and all that. But yeah, I still It has nothing to do with you drawing graphs everywhere. No, that's a different one. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> that's graphographia. <laughs> so that, that, that's the struggle with that one. Graphographia. That's a tough one. So your podcast, what was the early days of your podcast and where is it at now? And yeah, so the, give us some pointers. We just, we're, we're brand new to this. So we're babies. <laughs> when I, my, one of my things, I listened to a ton of podcasts out there and I realized that my attention span was somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes. Unless it was a really compelling topic or it was in a, like in this, where there's a group format. So let's listen to one person talk for a long time. So um, I decided to try to target about 10 minutes was my, my first kind of goal. And then the other piece was I recognized in myself that it was never the technical stuff that I struggled with. It was, I could pick that up really fast, but what I really struggled with was the creativity side and dealing with the inner dialogue you have with yourself as an artist and so the original podcast was set up just for myself as a way to try to talk through that and so how do we how do we deal with the fact that we tell ourselves we're not any good or we don't have any creative ideas or haven't picked up a camera in a week and what does that actually mean Um, and as I started doing it then that led into just me realizing there's a lot of other things that I was struggling with and dealing with and then as people started to listen which I still to this day surprised me because I was like there's people actually listening to this. They uh, started asking me questions about this is what I'm dealing with or how would you deal with this kind of thing. And that's that's kind of where it started. Um, and since then, it's just evolved into really just a, a continued dialogue, mostly with myself. So almost every single topic, unless it's a question specifically from a viewer, is an introspection thing that I'm dealing with at that time. So it was both cathartic and motivational for yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. And did it did it make you pick up your camera more and start shooting? It, it has, and it's also given me the, the freedom is not the right word, but the recognition that the times I don't pick up my camera is a part of my creative process. Right. So one of the things I've recognized is there are certain people and they shoot through everything. Like they pick up the camera and they just talk about, I'm going to shoot, 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 no matter what happens. But for me, I'm as much a consumer of photography as I am a shooter. And so I, I love the printed photograph. I have hundreds. We just moved. I have about 400 photo books 
and I can sit there and consume those books and I can consume cinema. And I realized that that was actually incredibly important to my creative process as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things the podcast has taught me is that it's okay not to shoot all the time. There is a time to, um, almost like in winter, you hole up, I reprocess, rethink about, look back at work that was created over the past year, past four years, five years, because as a fine art photographer, that's about 80% of the work I do. So I'm not under a gun to get done. My commercial editorial stuff has a definite deadline, but my fine art stuff, I'm looking at stuff created 10 years ago, 15 years ago on film even, mm-hmm. and recognizing an evolution of that work today. And so having some of that recognition that I'm not required to shoot all the time, I can go back and look and try to figure out some of that puzzle as it's being unfolded. You incorporate a lot of old processes, palladium, yes. platinum into you. So do you think it's the history of you kind of looking at all those photo books and knowing the history of photography that it has been um, so interesting for you to kind of gravitate towards the older processes? I I think that's probably an offshoot now. What originally drew me to them is I absolutely fell in love the first time I hand-coded a piece of paper. Right, yeah. So that actual... The process of the making actual that process happen. of yeah. making that happen. And then the, also the recognition that it was, even though each image is very close to the same, there's a uniqueness to each They're image. They're all one-offs, effectively. Yep. And yeah. so, yeah, even in a, in a limited edition of 15, you're getting 15 unique one-off right. in the set. That was very appealing. The other piece that was interesting to me in that regard was there is a a relationship to the work when we create the actual photograph. And it was something I was recognizing in myself and in other photographers, they don't print enough. And without the connection to the print, we lose some aspect of the, of the photographic process. And so things are malleable when they're on a screen. They're never finished when they're on a screen. Even if I say it's done, I always can come back in and work on it. But right. as soon as I commit it to paper, there is a finality to that. And I have to make a decision of it's final for the trash or it's final for the wall. Right. But I have put a stake in the ground and that, time that it takes in that hand coating process is slow a platinum print several minutes to coat it's 14 minutes in my uv light box because i live in seattle we don't have the sun so it's 14 minutes in the light box <laughs> that's kind of funny yeah. <laughs> the wash cycle is about 30 minutes for a print and then it's in its final wash cycle so that commitment to an hour basically for a photograph is slows me down makes me get really connected to the work and really experiential to the work. I think you learn a lot by actually making a print. So many photographers now don't do that. They don't even digitally print their stuff. They, it just, it lives only in, you know, some sort of uh, luminous medium on a screen or on the web. Um, Yeah. And it's one of those things where I, it's a bet I'll always take that I can make anybody a better photographer in about an hour. And all I do is make and print four or five of their photographs and look at them. I remember I had a professor um, who said, when, during the darkroom stuff, um, he said, how do you know you make a good print until you make a bad one? Meaning you keep burning, you keep dodging, you keep working it in the darkroom until it's no longer good. And then you step back and was, and you learn so much about different areas of the print when you're in a darkroom, yeah. which I don't think is quite the same as when you do it digitally. Because when you did digitally do it, you can break it down to almost too many pieces, if that makes sense. Yeah. Does that make sense? Kind You're of, not, not really. Am I, am not I, am not I much of what you say makes sense. <laughs> oh, it makes perfect no, let's sense. go. Let, can we go back to palladium and platinum printing? Yeah. Walk me through the process of both. What do you get? What are the benefits? What are the costs? That sort of thing. The cost is about a mortgage. No, <laughs> so in the but yeah, printing yeah, cheap. At what point platinum platinum printing was the one of the dominant forms of printing before silver gelatin? Um, some cost. World War One happened. We put a lot of platinum into brakes for tanks. So silver took hold about that time period. Before then, you could actually go in and buy platinum paper. The, the thing about the process is, and one of the reasons I love it is, it is not possible to replicate it in a digital format. Because the chemistry is you hand coat the paper, it actually is pulled into the paper and it's a metal, so it's the iron salts are actually pulled into depth in the paper, and then when it's exposed, that exposure is through layers of the paper. So there's a dimensionality to a platinum print that you can't replicate digitally because we're on the surface of the paper. So this is actually creating depth in the paper. So there's a quality to that, and it's shifted by the type of paper you use on how much 
material is actually absorbed in that process. But the actual process is you have a couple of chemicals that act as uh, contrast boosters or restrainers, and there's a mixing of those. And then you either apply a platinum or a palladium or a mix of those two together, and it's tiny, tiny amounts. So you're talking about for an 8 by 10 negative, you're in the 26 to 30 drops of total solution to actually coat the paper. So you're going to coat the paper using a hake brush or a, a very high-end paintbrush. You're going to coat the paper. Then once the paper dries, the negative gets put on it, so it's a contact printing process. So the actual size of a platinum print was the actual size of the negative. Mm -hmm. So in the old days, this is how I started shooting. This is why and the reason I started shooting an 8 by 10 camera because digital hadn't really taken a foothold yet, and I wanted those big platinum negatives, and the only way you got them was to shoot an 8x10 camera or an 11x14 camera. So that contact printing is, is critical to the process as well because there's no enlargement, loss of detail. So it's that direct contact. It's exposed only under UV light. Once exposed under UV light, it goes into the developer, and the coolest part about it is it's an instantaneous out-development process. So as you take one of there's about four developers. You can use a potassium oxalate, ammonium citrate, a couple other ones. But as you pour the developer over there, it instantly develops. So you instantly see the image, and it's done at that point. And then it goes through some washing processes. Cost-wise, 100 milliliters of platinum cost you close to $1,000, I think, right now. Wow. wow. So each print cost me in the neighborhood, and I'm printing a little large. I'm in the 11 by 15 range for most of my print. 16 by 20 would be huge. But somewhere between that 9 by 12 range, looking at about with the adding all the materials and cost, I'm about 8 to $14 a sheet. Wow. And how often does something not turn out? Because, like, I know I've had a lot a of lot. experience. Yeah. So, and why <laughs> is that? Like, So part of it is if you're doing traditional film negatives, you're having to just the first two chemistries to adjust the contrast. Yep. So depending on how contrast or flat the negative is, you're tweaking the adjustment there. So you learn to read the density of the negative, and you realize, like, oh, it has a contrast range of 1.8. So you think, oh, that's pretty flat, so I need to adjust the chemistry this way, but you're still guessing. So until the print's made, you don't have the feedback to make the decision. What's really cool now, this is my kind of my niche I've fallen into is a guy named Dan Brookhalter in the late nineties figured out how to take a substrate of the overhead transparency through a inkjet printer and make a digital negative that we could then print all these historical processes with. So that's where everybody is now. If you show up with an iPhone, we can create a digital negative through an inkjet printer and go through this process. So that's actually easier to control because we know definitively what the time is, what the contrast ratio is. And then we just have to make what appears on the computer screen correct the challenge there is people don't necessarily know what a good black and white photograph is mm -hmm. <laughs> so they've created a bad black and white photograph and then the second thing is the contrast range of a platinum negative is um, wider in latitude than a traditional print so a traditional print and then we think of ansel adams zone system it has about 10 zones of data but a platinum print can hold somewhere between 12 and 14, depending on the scale and all that. So there's actually more contrast range available for the print to take. It's a flatter-looking, more matte-looking print, but there's more data that can be stored there. So it takes a while to learn how to actually create that digital negative. So you, But the only way you get it is to print. So you're going to print, that's not right. You're going to print, that's not right. And eventually you get more and more dialed in. The other piece that's hard is the hand coating process. If that's screwed up at all, the print doesn't work. So if the chemistry doesn't get coated perfectly evenly, yep. then the density is off in one place than another. And you have to figure out by looking at it, was that a digital editing problem, an inkjet problem, paper problem, a chemistry problem? So there's a lot of problem solving in it. So do you just love the process of going through it as yep. opposed to just outsourcing it like, like everyone does for printing? Yeah, I, I would never outsource my printing. Nice. Yeah, the quality and the, what you get out of learning to print and learning to see is important. Um, just in my own color photography, not in the historical side, learning to see color and color cast and how color is a, affects things. So when I look at a color photograph, I might be like, oh, there's green in there. People are like, well, how, when I teach a color class up in Seattle, I'm like, oh, how do you see that green? I can't see it. I'm like, I've learned to see green. It's like asking a chef, well, how'd you know that needed more or less of a certain seasoning. They're like, well, you taste it, and you know it needs more oregano. But if you don't train yourself that way, it's hard to do. So 
I feel like if I outsource my prints, I'm going to lose that feedback to tell me how to be a better photographer. Because every time I make a mistake behind the camera more than once, it's because I don't have a print to reference. So I've been to Yellowstone many times. I have this dream of a fly fishing article. And I've been three times and the guys I go fly fishing with, and I'm not a fly fisherman, so I'm relying on them to catch something. They never have. <laughs> you go with the wrong guys. Yeah, so we've never <laughs> gone three times yeah, and no we, one's caught we, anything? Well, You're I going mean, with the wrong yeah, guys. Yeah, I mean, they're like four inches. I mean, yeah. they're not. Those are throwbacks. Fish. Yeah. yeah. They're like bait for other fish. Yeah. Um, but my second trip to Yellowstone, I came back home and had the exact same horrible photographs. I mean, the same spot, the same composition. And I realized, oh, my gosh, I'm not going back and looking at prior work and prior prints. And as soon as I started doing that, at least I got to make a new mistake. I love new mistakes. I just hate the same mistake over again. So what are you shooting on when you're in Yellowstone? Because you're coming back and you're making digital negatives on an Epson. So I'm shooting, uh, like into Yellowstone, I'll take an 8x10 view camera, a 4x5 view camera, a 6-7 film camera. And then right now I... And a wagon to carry it all. (laughs) I mean, Edward Weston said, if you're shooting large format, there's nothing in the world worth photographing more than 500 yards from the car. (laughs) Um, And then I'm shooting right now, I'm shooting a a Nikon line, so I'm shooting a D810 or a D700. And that's what you wanted to make in the digital negatives with? I'll make those out of the digital negatives out of those, yeah. And I switched to the D810 because uh, the D700, I can get 20 by 30 inch prints out of pretty easy, even though it's a small smaller megapixel count. Um, it's a really clean, good sensor. But what I wanted was the resolution that I was seeing in my large format film. Mm. And so I went to the D810 because of the higher resolution that was coming off the sensor. How did the Epson um, negatives look? I'm curious. I've never seen one come out of an Epson printer. So they they look horrible because one of the things we have to do in that process is we have to tone map what happens in the alternative process, no matter whether it's cyanotype, Van Dyke, platinum, or whatever. We have to we basically print a hundred step wedge file. We print it in the process. We really go back in and remeasure that. And then we have to tell Photoshop in a curve, you sent 12 out of the printer, but that's actually 28 in the print. You sent 52 out of the printer and that's actually 76 out of the print. So we're measuring the relative black values. And we end up with this really wicked looking curve and it makes the negative look horrible. Seriously, Horrible. And so people, like, the first time they take a class or they do it, the negative comes out, and they're like, there's no Not way. There's no way. I mean, it, the first time I did it, I was like, you've got to be So why does me. that work? If a, if a traditional negative is going to work, why is an Epson yeah. that's totally, completely whacked out? It's all why about it the ability of the pigment of the ink and the density of that to block up UV light. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, so it's blocking of UV. Yeah, it's all about blocking UV contrast. So the other thing we do is we... Um, run a series of tests to figure out, should we put a color tone over the negative? So with platinum, we use green. Mm-hmm. So it's a really heavy green that goes onto it. In silver gelatin, we use kind of a magenta brown. Cyanotypes, we use a kind of reddish color. And it's all about just figuring out which process and the chemistry underneath and how it reacts to the ultraviolet light. So it's a, a little bit of science. And, yeah, no, and a lot process. of science is pretty cool. One of the things I've always liked about the old processes like palladium and platinum, um, even though it's contact printed, there's a little bit of softness to it yeah. because you have the layers, as you're talking about, you have the layers of the paper that the, the um, iron, the metals are going down into. So it gives it that kind of soft edges everywhere, which yeah. is just kind of cool. Yeah, it's the same thing um, when I do wet plate work. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you get the ether collodion on there and then the silver nitrate bath. And so that stuff just oozes down into that collodion. And yeah, there's a dimensionality to that that is just, yeah. I hope you're careful. I hope you're wearing gloves and you're pretty careful with this stuff. Yeah, the, is- the platinum, I started with platinum because it's actually one of the most benign of the processes. Yeah. Um, the actual clearing bath is a food additive that they use to clean food and stuff. That one's pretty, pretty benign. Yeah, but the wet plate, yeah, that's mask, hat, yeah. goggles. Silver nitrate will blind you. You're like Walter White in the... In the room. Actually, Walter White, like in the first episode. Yeah, yeah. Like, Are you in your running, underwear? I'm not running around in my Are underwear. You gotta in the be, you got to be in your underwear, man. <laughs> Mask, goggles, <laughs> the apron, yeah, that whole thing's happening. But no no underwear in the desert. I feel like as a, like a digital artist, I'm totally missing out on this experience. You know, coming from, I never had the opportunity to learn film. So how do you think that's impacting, you know, the artists that are going forward? That's a great question. Um, I think there's a, we're seeing a pretty big resurgence back into film. Mm-hmm. And part of that, I think, is the unknown aspect for the artist in the creation process. 
But the other piece I've seen is I would, in my classes that I teach, I would say probably three quarters of them are people who have a certain sense of seeing what they want in an image and they haven't yet been able to figure out how to create a look digitally to do it. They can do all the compositing, they can get it out and they can get everything structurally built in the frame. But it's like the print when they make it, it's like, it just doesn't quite feel right. And they're returning to some of these historical processes as a way to say, is this giving me the textural and the, the undescribable quality that I can't find in my other photographs. So most of the people I'm getting now, a lot of them are actually compositors coming back in and, which is really exciting for me because it's taking what is the front edge of digital and taking something that's 150 years old at this point and blending them together in a way that never has been done before. So, so. what are they seeing when a digital artist comes in, a composite artist, and they start to – what are you seeing in their eyes like when they're starting to see these old processes come um, together with their work? It's the the actual – like I said, the interaction of the creation of the paper part with the coding part mm -hmm. that there's a kinesthetic quality to the creative act that is different than on the computer so there's a oh my gosh i'm completely connected to this and then because like you said that depth that exists in these whether it's a cyanotype and like that depth that exists that's what i see them light up as like i it looks three-dimensional is what i hear out of them a lot so all the work to create a three-dimensional looking right. artifact in a two-dimensional world and then when they print this way it's like this has dimensionality that I couldn't get before. And it is subtle if you've never seen it, but when you, once you see it, you're like, Oh my gosh, that's what it is. And then what happens is you know, if you think about your work and it's not toned blue. So we put more ink on the paper when it prints, it's not red, it's not green. We chemically create that reaction and then we can manipulate that after the fact. So let's say you came in and you're like, Oh, I really like the look of this cyanotypes so you get that really rich blue but i want it to be a plummy jam color well we can take that and add copper salts to it after the fact and start to drift the blue to a red and you get to watch and be like now it's done and it pulls out of the process That's so there's a complete cool. control through that whole thing of like when is this going to be done so we get the print done but now we can play with the toners and all sorts of other elements with it how many people under 30 are taking your printing classes what would you say the age range is um for this for the historical all process stuff the probably, probably over half oh wow that's kind of opposite of what i thought it would be i, I would have figured you everyone would be a bunch 30. of old yeah. geezers yeah, the class, yeah. <laughs> i don't know i, well, I just want i just so, old so like i don't see under 30 really care that much about printing renee anything? well there's a huge resurgence in the in the film world i've seen i mean especially with the rise in hipsters you know um, using film and like learning how to print your own stuff is really coming back i mean i was in a i was in a store not too long ago and they were actually selling film rolls and i was like really there's film rolls for sale here that's amazing so that means that the market obviously i mean and this is kind of how it happens there's always that swing you know the next generation does the opposite of the previous generation and so on. And so it swings back and forth. You know, my generation is like, woo, digital, you know, confetti and butterflies everywhere. Um, and so it makes sense that the people 10 years younger than me are, are super interested in, in film and printing again. And I, I mean, that that's just something I've noticed. I mean, I've been, I've been in this industry for 19 years now and it just, it just swings, you know, so it seems about that right that time. So are people using older film cameras or companies making new film cameras? I haven't, noticed, I haven't noticed a lot of new film cameras. I mean, I'm oblivious, though, to that. But you I mean, I've noticed the, a ton of people buying yeah. old film cameras. Yeah. They're you really gotta, disappearing. They're hard to get. Yeah. yeah. And I was uh, talking to a guy down in uh, Portland who runs a great old camera shop. And he said at this point, he can't repair most of the cameras that come in because he can't get the parts because everybody's buying out the film cameras. China has a huge fascination with film cameras. Yeah. And so a lot of the stuff has been purchased and, and it is being shot in China, which is great because that's a huge untapped market. So we actually have new black and white film. We've had three companies release new black and white film in the last couple of years. And I mean, that was, there wasn't going to be yeah. anymore. And now we're actually seeing money put into the creation of new film um, for that. I think the other thing from my perspective on the question, and I've seen this in a couple of my commercial clients, you can't get the look any other way than doing the process. And so um, there's a wet plate photographer named Ian Rutter who amazing and shoots four feet by six foot 
plates shot out of the back of a van as his camera. Um, oh, I think I've, 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 seen, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Seen that guy. He yeah, traveled so, around. Yeah, traveled around. Yeah, yeah. But he's now been able to do some commercial work because companies have realized if you want that look, yeah, you can't get it any other way than having somebody do that. So I think part of the resurgence is as people are trying to differentiate themselves, trying to find an identity that's separate from everything else that's being seen. Um, and because of the unique quality, it makes it more valuable to collectors, more valuable in the space. I think part of that is people stepping back under 30 and realizing like, oh, I don't want to be just like everybody else. How can I differentiate myself? And here's a skill set that very few people have that I could step into and truly be on the forf- on the front edge of that uh, pendulum swing again. Yeah, which is so funny because just a few years ago, the digital composite artist was king and now it's like, ha ha, film. <laughs> <laughs> But even that's getting remixed now, which I think is kind of encouraging. Yeah. Like you're saying, a lot of the people in your course are composite artists and they're, they're learning how to print that to get a totally different effect. So are you going to try it? I was thinking about it, actually. I was really excited when I was in high school. I went to sign up for a course to understand how to how to develop film. And I went to high school and they said, oh, we just canceled that course this year. So I changed high schools to get that course. And I went wow. to the other school and they closed it that year. So I've never I've never developed a single I've never developed a single photo ever. <laughs> never oh a print. Oh my god, that's so crazy! I've, I've printed my, I've printed my composite stuff, you know, and and photography, but I've never done the printing. I have no idea how it works. So this is just fascinating. I'm just sitting here, just this is so cool. Rob, we should turn the basement into a film lab. Get rid of all your props. Let's let's throw it. I'm, I'm, th- I'm gonna I'm gonna send a message. I'll have everyone throw away your props. <laughs> when we get back, we will have no. First we'll of all, have the fixer, we'll have the bathtub. I have we'll a darkroom in the house right now. I don't use it. I had a darkroom in my Chicago studio. I didn't use it. It's well, just, now I'm motivated to use it. Let's do it. Uh, Come on. <laughs> it'd be fun, actually. It'd be, it's really cool to watch a print. I want to get some of this. Like really have you, ever, have you ever seen a, have you yeah, ever made prints? I did in high school. Yeah. Good. But pff, I don't remember any of that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> kidding I, me? That didn't stay with me. I don't know what I'm doing. I will say it is oh different God. to watch a print come up than to do the side to side with your head in front of the printer. It's just not the same. Yeah. Do you do any digital printing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I probably, I do more digital than I do other stuff. Yeah, so what's your, what's your go-to printer? What do you, and, and give me the paper. Let's get nerdy on paper. I, uh, my default printer is a Epson 7900. And paper-wise, the legacy Beretta, legacy Platine papers are unreal. Yeah. Uh, I love Exhibition Fiber for black and white work. The hot press papers are really beautiful. They have a really nice color gamut, particularly on some of the more saturated pieces. So when I print, I don't have like a go-to paper. I really look at the depends on the depends on depends what on printing. the image. Yeah, yeah. I, I think about the texture, tooth, weight of the paper, the color of the paper, what the image is, and then the big one for me is how saturated is the image. And so, on the nerdy side, I have color think and a spectrographometer and I measure everything and I figure what out what is a spectrographometer it <laughs> sounds like spe- witchcraft it's a, spectro- <laughs> it's a spectrophotometer yeah it basically that's when you're making a paper profile what it does is able to read the luminous nanometer wavelengths off a piece of paper okay. and that's what builds the paper profiles and so I like to measure all of that and figure out which papers give me which gamut and which color spaces so if I have a more saturated image or a less saturated image I also think about how sharp is the image? How many gradients are in the image? So if you walk into my place, I've got 15, 20 different papers, and I have played with all of them. Any graphing paper? I, 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 there's actually a Japanese <laughs> watercolor paper that has beautiful graphing lines on it. Bringing it back. It's, it's, Bringing it back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> think about how, how complex paper is, though. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's not something that most people think about at all. And as you're listening to Daniel talk, I mean, it's amazing how complex just the selection and really the building of a paper what goes into that paper just the technology alone of printers these days is nuts how small it is and how fast it shoots ink into something that clear that just blows my mind i can't i cannot comprehend how printers work well it's the interesting piece too has been the i mean canon and epson right now are at the forefront of the digital print space and the in that complexity of paper world the the holy grail is in the D-Max, which is the black we create. In the traditional analog dark room, an Ansel Adams print, which is kind of like the hallmark of a robust black and white, was around 2.3, 2.35, somewhere in there. The scale goes to, it's a theoretical scale, but we usually kill it off at about four. The new Epson printers on the new Epson papers will do about 2.6. So we're seeing a richer black in a print than we've ever seen. 
And so that's really changing our ability mm-hmm. to understand and interpret the photograph because we're creating now a contrast range we've never seen before. And what's great about Epson and Canon both be invested in the party now is they're going to continue to push each other on how the blacks develop, how the colors are able to subtly separate in tone and how they build. And when we only have one vendor in the market, they eventually do sit back on their heels. So it's great to see Canon and Epson. And at the end of the day, unless you are one of the brilliant, truly top tier printers thing, anything coming out of a printer, most people aren't gonna be able to tell the difference between the two. Anyway, it's only somebody who's got a real eye and knows exactly what to look for, which is by the way, the black um, can tell you the difference between the printers, <laughs> but most people will never be able to tell. So just printing is the more important element of, of the process. So what's some things that printers look forward to in terms of new technology, like with photographers, it's ISO or, um, megapixels it's always like the megapixel war is there something in in the printing world that everyone's waiting for to come out uh, the dmax the value of the black ink uh the printer's not clogging yeah so that they actually yeah, are reliable when you turn them on cheaper ink probably <laughs> yeah i think everybody's accepted the fact that's probably never going to happen yeah um, and part of the that's just that's such a i don't it, know it is. don't always, get me started about know, i've always said i should get whatever printer i want for free because you're going to charge me tens of thousands of dollars of ink in the mm-hmm. lifetime. Yeah. And so, and if you know, my printer is huge, it showed up on a shipping pallet. So it's right. not like they're going to have to give those to everybody because nobody's going to haul that up three flights of stairs <laughs> in an apartment. But yeah, so it's the. Did you? Uh, no, the high, farthest I carried it up was a flight and a half. Okay, I was going to say, man, that's dedication. No, no, but I had the little <laughs> straps you carry a refrigerator with. Yeah, yeah. You know, wow. My new studio. The movie guys were excited because they rolled it off the truck. I'm like, just wheel it in there. It's all flat. They were like, <laughs> no stairs. But the yeah, the D-Max speed is another one. How fast can we get a print out? And that's one of the areas where we see a lot of improvement from generation to generation. Uh, the other one is the print head technology. So what's being sprayed down is little drops of ink. But that pattern, the randomization of that pattern, the consistency of that pattern, and how those little dots are able to hit and overlap to actually generate the millions of colors we're used to seeing. So that that pattern of that and the density of of that is is significant. So you have a lot of things that you do in photography. How would you describe the type of work you do? What type of photographer are you? I normally tell people I'm a fine art photographer, and then they ask me what my day job is. <laughs> uh, I, I I would mostly describe myself as a as a fine art photographer. My I do, like I said, I've got a, a set of editorial clients, a set of commercial clients that I do work with off and on I'm on various jobs. But most of my work is collections of work, and I'm a long lead shooter. So it's like the current body of work I'm working on is work that I didn't realize I was shooting five years ago, and I thought bodies being pulled together. And that's work that's about finding human figure form in the natural world, so in rock formations and tree bark and things like that. And it's we're as much nature's muse as she is ours. So it's that interaction of that, that play together. Um, environmentalism is an important aspect of, of what I do. So I'm an environmental person. That's something that's always been important to me. So that always has an aspect of the kind of work I do. Um, so then that social aspect, I kind of think about that kind of work. On the editorial commercial side, I turned down work that I don't have any interest in doing or don't feel like it's a skill set I have. So I love portraiture. I love taking pictures of people, but I will never, ever, 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 ever do a wedding. I, I, there's nothing wrong with that. There's yeah, no shame in that. There's not. And that's, and, <laughs> and, and, stress what, I, me and out. what I tell people is yeah. there are people who love weddings and yeah. love wedding photography. Yeah. Go find somebody who loves what they do and is passionate about it. And you are going to be blown away at what you get right. for somebody who's just mailing it in. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then that piece. Um, and then the other piece I tell people is I'm an educator. So, I absolutely love sharing the things I've learned and the processes I've learned. I love talking about photography, visual literacy, and the art of talking about photographs is really important to me. So I, I've also accepted that I'm not a, I don't make my living as a photographer purely in photography. I have about five or six irons in the fire that do that. And so I am very much a creative artist person who makes a living that way. You do have a wealth of knowledge in photography how did you get to that point did you have a mentor did you go to school so galen rowell who was a landscape photographer shot for national geographic 
he and his wife died in a small plane crash in the late 90s. And I had always wanted to meet Galen. He was a huge inspiration for me when I was in high school and junior high. I just fell in love with his work. And he was a mountaineer climber. I grew up in Colorado. So I felt a really strong connection to him and he died. And I didn't get to meet him. And I was like, oh, that's, that's bad. Yeah. So I made a bucket list of photographers who were important to me. And I'm like, I'm going to meet these people. And I'm going to go figure out who I connect with, who I don't connect with. But there are people I has work I looked at. This is the internet websites or whatever. And I made my bucket list and I just. So who'd you meet? Well, let's go down the list. So who'd you meet? Uh, William Albert Allard, Bill Allard, um, National Geographic. Yeah. Oh, my God. And I just Bill is amazing. And we spent many a night drinking on the Spotted Cat down in New Orleans um, with my friend Jacob. And great, great experience there. Um one of my big mentors is John Paul Caponegro, mm-hmm. um, who I found through his dad. Um, but I've spent uh, time, cool. time with JP. Um, Mac Holbert, who's a he created Nash uh, images with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yeah, Graham Nash. So Mac Holbert, I had the privilege of getting to work with and learn from. Um, here at Photoshop World, Moose Peterson was a huge, and still continues to be a huge supporter and influence for me in terms of a number of ways. Um, R.C. Concepcion, Scott Kelby, uh, McNally was on that list. Um, Sam Abel, another oh, yeah. national graphic Sam. Sam's yeah, work. Absolutely stunning. I met um, him years ago in Santa Fe at Santa Fe Workshop. Brilliant guy. Keith Carter, uh, who is un- unlike anybody. Uh, Texas, got this great Southern draw. I went to Texas Tech University. And when I met Keith, I was like, oh, my gosh, I sound like I'm back in Texas. Uh, <laughs> but he's just an amazing photographer. Mary Ellen Mark. I had the privilege of getting to meet Mary Ellen oh, Mark. That's a good one, um, too. Todd Hedo. I uh, had the privilege of, of working some and getting some feedback on work with Todd Hedo. Um, I am now actually the executive director at the school I teach at is a woman named Michelle Marsh who worked for Aperture for years. She runs a book publishing company called Minor Matters, and she's always been a huge resource, particularly on the visual literacy side. That's where you're getting all your books from, huh? She's surprisingly really, <laughs> really stingy with those. Oh. And I told her, I'm like, if you die before I do, she's like, they go to Bard. Oh. I was like, oh, I've already thought of that. So, on the on the book topic, what recommendations for our listeners do you have for art books? You gotta you gotta have you gotta have on your coffee table or on your bookshelf. That's a that's a really hard question. That's a loaded question because there are <laughs> yeah. so many good books. So, what one of the things I recommend people do is find the photographer you love. Like Michael Ken is another one. I uh, he lives up in the Seattle area. I love him as a photographer. He's also an incredibly amazing individual. And I went for Michael Ken. I actually went and just bought his, the first book of his I bought was a retrospective. And I'm like, I just love Michael Ken's work. This is the best of what he said he had done in the first 20 years of his career. So in that regard, I was like, cool, I'm going to do this piece. I started with the retrospective piece and now I own 13 of his books. So find the photographer you love and without any concern about whether or not you think it's cliche, trendy, whatever. If Ansel Adams is your photographer that inspires you and you love, go find the Ansel Adams book that you love. If it's 40 examples of great prints, great. If it's his work for the National Park, great. Um, Jack Dikinga is another amazing photographer who let me interview him early in my decision to try to become a professional photographer. Um, He has a book called Arizona, which is just stunningly beautiful work out of the desert that has shaped some of how I think about my Northwest photography. So finding the photographer who you just really connect with, and then just go find one of their true photo books, um, not one of their teaching books, right? Yeah. Go find one of the books that is just the imagery and then spend time having the book out. So one of the things I do is my books cycle off and on the book table. So they're off the coffee table. So they're always in use. And I hate books that are on the shelf that don't get looked at. I think books are there for us to look at and read and people can't believe they're like, Oh, you're letting me look at this hundred fifty, $200 photo book. I'm like, why wouldn't you look at it? That's I bought it because it needs to be consumed. That's the photographer didn't build it for us not to look at it. So it's, it's tough for me to say, say in that regard, Um, some of Kenna's work is absolutely from a print quality standpoint, absolutely sublime in the book. Um, What makes a great book to you? Like what makes a great photographic art book for you? It's the same thing that makes a photograph work for me. It's I leave the book knowing more than when I came in about 
the work, the photographer, and myself. So if I look at that and I'm like, oh, I have felt something, then I know something significant has happened. Is the tactile experience as important for you as the visual and emotional experience? Yeah. 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 And that's the part that kills me with the book. book. Yeah. And the book, you get that. And when you sequence a book, so when the process of editing and sequencing for a wall is different than a book, but the thing that kills me with the book to your question of what would I would not buy, I'll actually, if I can get it out of the wrapper at the bookstore and not get in trouble, I always like to see how the print quality is because the print quality is bad. I like, I can't buy it because I've seen so much of these prints in real life that I'm looking at the book and I'm like, that photograph's not purple. The printer made the photograph purple. <laughs> right. What were they doing? And so the, R- that running it on a web press and not checking. <laughs> exactly. it. That's what they were doing. So your experience then has basically in some ways ruined your ability to enjoy artwork. I would say has shifted my ability to appreciate shifted. it. That's a better word. Because yeah. it's never, I assume it's not the photographer. It is that something happened in the print process. Um, I've rarely seen, rarely seen a bad printer photographer have a book, but I've seen it the other way. I've seen horrible printer photographers with amazing books. Cause I know the pre-press person was really good at what they did. You know, we, we spent so much time talking about so many of these printing processes. How would someone like Renee, who's been a compositor and, you know, behind a Wacom tablet and a monitor for so long, how would they best get into figuring out how to do this printing? Cause it's, it's a, it's a big road to go down. Yeah. And it could be intimidating and I don't want it to be intimidating for people because it is so exciting and so educational. I was I was literally thinking while you were describing, you know, all the things that go into it and I was thinking, well, people say Photoshop's complicated. This seems way more complicated and I have to wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> well, for normal printing you don't. The ink coming out of the printer is not gonna be toxic. Right. The and you don't need pants for that either. <laughs> pants Any are, day pants are always pants optional. Is a yeah. good day. I'm about to take mine off. <laughs> the the Probably the most important thing you would do first, which I always have assumed photographers would do, but I'm learning not to make that assumption, is to calibrate your monitor. So a color calibrator gets you 95% of the way to printing because we need to make sure that the colors on the screen are in approximation to what we're going to see in the print. And if you get them closer and closer and closer and then understand the difference between transmittive light and reflective light, you can actually start to get the screen relatively close to the print. I also tell people don't don't just jump in and buy you know, a P800 or one of the Pro 1000 printers and get the ink set up and deal with that frustration. Just start by sending it to Bay Photo Impix, uh, someplace that has some quality control. Costco actually does a surprisingly good job because they move such volume, the chemistry and the Stuff is always fresh. Costco. Costco actually does a pretty consistent job of getting you, if you send 10 prints, they'll come back. 10 will look almost pretty close to the same. Wow. They just move enough volume through their machine that the chemistry stays consistent. But getting some just prints done. You get a huge jumbo pack of them, too. Great price. But, yeah, but Bay (laughs) I did a lot of printing out of Bay uh, Photo and Impix both. And just get the print and then just start by looking at the print and make some decisions about, do I like? The paper. Do I like the glossy or matte paper? It's 50 cents for a small one. It's a couple of bucks for a larger one, but get a glossy and get a matte. And be like, oh, I like glossy over matte, but I don't like what glossy does to my yellows and greens. So then I would make the change in the computer for how the yellows and greens get dealt with. But just starting to have that print and then have it live on the wall and start to look at those different elements. But just starting with a third-party printing company. And if you work with this is one of the things that makes Costco, Costco oddly interesting. Mm-hmm. You need a paper profile to match the monitor. So the computer is going to make a decision about what to show on the screen. Its con- color management system is then going to look at what's coming in on the digital file out of Photoshop, and then it's going to send it off to the printer. The profiles, the ICC profiles, allow the translation of all the colors to happen. Without that printer one, it's a shot in the dark. But Costco, Bay Photo, Impix all have ICC profiles you can get from them and put in your computer. And then you can saw proof and take a look and see like, oh, this is what the effect is. That's what makes Costco so weird. It's Costco is mind blown. I know. Costco now. is <laughs> way more than 50 gallons of mayonnaise and 9,000 hamburger buns. I mean, yeah. who knew? 38 cent hot dogs, Rob. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I will say the corner drugstore is a terrible idea for your colors. They're either going to be green or yellow. Yeah. Walgreens. Green. Get your passport photo there right about it yellow no you don't even get your passport photo there you do it yourself if you want a yellow yeah. face writing 
<laughs> Rite Aid yellow, Walgreens is green, green. and I, CBS yeah. I haven't done enough because we don't have them, so I don't know what color they are, but I'm sure they've got a nice tint to it. Too. <laughs> yeah, when we went to Walgreens to get our visa for Brazil with the photos. No bueno. Oh, man, that was, oh, was painful. <laughs> I was like trying to tell her, I was like, come on, no, damn it, we're going to do this. So I quit. <laughs> And then we went back and we did it. I was like, this is going to take right. twice as long. You We're thought to yourself, the DMV does way better than this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Speed. It was, yeah, we thought it could be fast. It was, yeah. You know. They had to find the camera. There was no batteries in it. It was terrible. No, nightmare. No bueno. <laughs> so where can everyone find your current portfolio and your classes? So my uh, website is www.danieljay, just the letter J, gregory.com. And up there is podcast workshops, all that kind of stuff. My social media handle is Dan Greg photo pretty much everywhere. I finally have co-opted after years of not doing that. Cause I'm not a huge social media person. Yeah. I always respond, but like I would rather be printing and shooting than social media. And it's always like, it never makes the cut. But anyway, I finally have though co-opted the right handle. So it's Dan Greg photo everywhere. Nice. I, in addition to my workshops that run out of my studio or are online, I also teach at the photographic center Northwest up in Seattle, which is a, somewhere between weekend workshops and 10 week courses that are up there in the Pacific Northwest for that. So what's awesome. next, what's next for you? What, what's on your horizon for photography? What are you looking forward to? I am. That's a wonderful question. I 2016 was a struggled year for my partner and I, from a family personal perspective, just her mother has Alzheimer's moving into late stage I was transitioning to photography full-time. I had some cancer stuff going on. So we just had a lot of stuff happen in 2016. So it was a not a super productive year. I think in general, us. everyone hated 2016. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it the was memes a rough year came all out the way around. The yeah. memes that came out on New Year's Eve were amazing. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a terrible year pretty yeah. much for everybody. Brutal. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. that year. R.I.P. David Bowie. Uh, yeah. For me, it was a year of, of a lot of attention somewhere else. And so I've just been really excited to pick back up the camera. And like I said, I've got my nature's muse project, which I've actually feel like I've have a lot of gasoline on. Like it's a very creative spot for me to work on. I'm really excited about that. I have a bunch of uh, backlog prints um, that are being done. So I have a bunch of different shows that are being printed there. And then I'm really excited about uh, my new studio space. So we sold one house. We bought another one. It's a small house, but I got a 600 square foot studio. And so I've actually now got my digital lab, my shooting lab, and my analog lab all in one space. Oh, that's so cool. that's been it's been interesting to see what's next for me there as it's actually turned into kind of this really interesting playtime. And nice. for me, I've learned when you are playing, things are always better. And so yeah. so to have that that freedom of playtime is, is Do great. you have any uh, advice for studio hacks for people with their first studio? What are what some things you could do? You can Never have enough labeled storage. <laughs> oh man, That's don't we know that? that I was, I holy was like, cow! I bought yeah. shelving and I got a label maker, yep. and I am just blown away at how easy things are. Yeah, and then I'm also blown away about how fast I can get upset with myself when I open the thing that has the label camera filters, and I'm like, where are the camera filters? Yeah. <laughs> so labeling and organization, I think, is, is a big one. That's the, a big part of our life, isn't it? Oh my god! Oh <laughs> wow! The the you know we spend the most amount not on printing but on labels, just for the the ink for the labels. Right, we spend the most amount of time looking for something. Yeah, lens caps. I'm terrible at uh, keeping track. Of lens that's caps. not your forte. Guilty. Let's just say that. Guilty. Yeah. And then the other thing I would say is make sure your personality is in your studio. So don't worry about is it professional for somebody who walks in make the space completely usable for you. Because if you can go in there and be creative and work, that's the energy that somebody else feels when they walk in the space. So, you know, I don't worry about, is, do I have the, my right images on the wall? If you come in, you're seeing what's on my walls, which maybe some other photographers work. It might be my next show is up, whatever I'm living with. But I have let go of trying to make sure that my studios to the impression of somebody else who shows up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want them to realize this is That's great advice. where You're I work advice. and this is yeah. what I do and this is how I work. And so that's important. Is that why you had three kegs when I met you, Rob Grimm? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or was it four? It's how I work. <laughs> is it six now? Is it, isn't variety the spice of life? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I always got to have a cold tap going. Yeah, I know. It's just the way it is. Well, good luck in 2017. I hope it is a much better year than than 2016 proved to be. And thank you for joining us. This has really been a lot of fun. No, I very much enjoy myself. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of the podcasts that come out and seeing what you guys have next on the horizon as well. We've We've got a killer lineup uh, this week. And then actually we go next week on Saturday, go right to NAB. So we have 10 days of almost 40 podcasts lined up. Right now, it's going to be. It's going to we'll be awesome. No voices in yeah. nine days, but that's okay. You can okay. hear we everyone need... talking right now. Yeah. We don't sound like bullfrogs, so <laughs> you're winning the lottery. Yeah, that that last podcast is going to be like and go. <laughs> I have to get some good tea. Yeah. Some good throat lozenges. There'll be yeah. lots of throat yeah. candies. I was going to go for beer, but if you guys want tea and <laughs> lozenges, that's fine. Yeah. Well, the bathtub is full. Rob. I know. Well, let's pop one. Let's pop one. All right. All right let's, let's get out of here. Pop one. You want a beer? I'll if, take one. All right, let's do it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can download the entire season from rggedupodcast.com. You can also subscribe on all of the networks. There's Rob, I'm going to quiz you now. I've been saying this MySpace. Now. No, we're not on MySpace. <laughs> Nexopia? Anybody know Nexopia? Uh, yeah. iTunes, G- Rob? G-O-C-D's? What else? iTunes, what's that? I just <laughs> use my MySpace page. <laughs> You don't even know the password to your MySpace page. You can't. You've been locked out for five years. What are you talking about? I've been locked out for ten years. Yeah. But who's counting? We're on Google. What else, Rob? Stitcher. Yes. Yes. I got and it. There's one more. Um, Ello. No. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even. I, I can't even believe you know what Ello is or was. I was surprised you what Stitcher was. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. You know, I'm a surprising kind of guy. Yeah. We're we're also um, on SoundCloud. We're free. You said that twice now. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Oh, Didn't did, you say yeah. something like twice? Josh, producer, what final? Oh, God. God. Just tuned to study. He's like, what is Rob talking? We're not even recording anymore. <laughs> so SoundCloud, what? this is on SoundCloud. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's wow. where it's hosted. Neat. Yeah. So the whole I thing, didn't know that. The whole thing is hosted there. Mind blown number two. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, let's, crack, let's crack one. All right, let's do it. Boom. Bye. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, the podcast is over. But before you go, I just wanted to let you know that I always take a penny from the penny tray at the gas station, but I never leave one. 